Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. My guest today is Professor Cheryl Maslin, who is Professor of Medicine at Oregon Health and Science University. Her research focuses on the genetic basis of congenital cardiovascular defects with a focus on rare disorders that greatly increase the risk of these defects, in particular Turner syndrome and Down syndrome. Welcome, Cheryl. Thank you, Gil. Yeah, thanks yeah. for doing So I want to start with one of your recent papers, uh, identifying genetic factors that contribute to the increased risk of congenital heart defects in infants with Down syndrome. Um, So um, Down syndrome, obviously, um, um, a disease that uh, a lot of people know of. Um, And uh, this is, if if you have Down syndrome, then the probability of having this defect is uh, significantly increased, right? Is that uh, that the idea? It's hugely increased, um, particularly for the congenital heart defect that we refer to as an atrioventricular septal defect, which is basically a big hole in the in the heart. If you think about um, what you learned about the heart as early as grade school, you know that it's divided into four chambers and that the blood flows from chamber to chamber and it goes in um, unoxygenated and the heart helps it perfuse with oxygen and then it goes back out to the rest of the body to provide oxygen and other other nutrients. And so if there isn't a separation in the heart, if that um, somehow doesn't form properly, um, then you don't, you get mixing of the two types of blood. Um, Babies can be what we call blue babies where um, their skin, especially around their nails and lips actually turns blue because they're not getting enough oxygen to their tissues. So um, it's a very, very rare occurrence in the general population, but in Down syndrome, up to around 30% of those babies have 
a complete atrioventricular septal defect, but up to 50% of them have some other form of defect in the heart that um, disrupts the separation of the chambers of the heart. So that's a huge increase over what we see in the general population. So, so if you have AVSD, you, you don't survive at birth? Um, if you have AVSD, you can survive at birth. Um, many years ago, that was not the case, but these days the surgical interventions are such that these children can and are saved. And um, so surgery to repair the heart and they can go on to um, lead um, relatively normal lives for um, somebody with Down syndrome, um, although some of them remain at risk throughout their lives for problems with their heart. And um, we don't really understand why that is. Some of it may be that surgery, although it repairs the problem, may also cause um, some, some damage when it's being done. But we also think that the genetics of why they ended up having an AVSD to begin with maybe are at play throughout their lives. So maybe um, the genes that are involved might be involved in um, not just making the heart, also keeping it healthy through your life. So if the gene is defective, then it's not doing yeah. its job. And it, I, I always think of it like like a, the maintenance crew that somebody's slacking off and not doing their job. Um, the, dam <laughs> the damage is going to pile up over, over time, right? And um, cause you problems yeah. later down the line. So uh, um, I, I don't know if the right way to think about it, Cheryl. So is AVSD sort of a spectrum that, uh, that the heart did not really get manufactured, so to speak, as, as normal fun normal process? And so it could have really severe defect. It could have maybe less severe and so on. Precisely. Yeah, that, that's... Um very much uh, what happens and how we think about it is a spectrum of defects. And there are some, we call them cardiac septal defects because it's the septa or the walls of the heart, in, yeah. in the internal walls of the heart that have holes in them. And some of those are quite survivable. And some of them are small enough that they even actually just self-repair as you grow and never require yeah. surgery. So it's really the, the big holes um, that are the ones that themselves and they're going to continue to cause you a lot of problems and and it affects the lungs as it turns out that you you get pulmonary disease because you're trying your lungs are trying so hard working so hard to get oxygen to the body um, that they're being overstressed and so um, that that's one of the major problems with this and why it has to be repaired because otherwise it's it's not long-term survivable right so you have a study paper, you say the study aimed to identify risk-associated genes and pathways and to examine potential polygenic contribution to AVST in DL. Um, so you, you, could you describe, uh, I think you have about 700 um, individuals here in the study. Yes. Yeah. So, so one of the great things about being a geneticist in this day and age is that the tools that we have available to us to um, look for genetic causes of disease are, are very powerful. And um, so we undertook this study. I work with a large group of people. This is not anything that one lab can do on its own. And so I work with, in particular, uh, Stephanie Sherman at Emory University and Roger Reeves at Johns Hopkins. And together we um, 
developed, um, Stephanie started the development of the Down Syndrome Heart Project, and then um, we were invited along with that. But we spent probably at least a decade, if not more, just recruiting study subjects with Down Syndrome to participate in our studies. And so this has a very long history of work behind it um, because you can't do human genetic studies without humans and humans that are well characterized. And so we, we, we amassed this, um, this cohort of individuals with Down syndrome who have been really our partners in studying different aspects of Down syndrome. And so from those, we selected individuals with Down syndrome, which is three copies of chromosome 21. And we verified that, um, that they actually had those three copies of chromosome 21 and a complete AVSD. And the standard of care in this country for Down syndrome is because they're such high risk of having a heart defect that we, um, have records of echocardiograms or other studies, so the, or even surgical records for AVSD, so we know exactly what they look like. And this is important when you're doing genetic studies, because if you start mixing up phenotypes, if you have unintentionally um, groups of people that don't all have the same defect or disease, it, it messes up your yeah. study, basically. And so then we were able to do whole exome and whole genome sequencing. And so, in other words, we're looking at the sequence of all of their genes, and then yeah. trying to put that together with the phenotype that we're interested in. So if we look at somebody with Down syndrome who has a totally healthy heart, and those individuals exist about 50% of Down syndrome, and then we compare their genomes to individuals with Down syndrome and an AVSD, do we see differences? And are those differences significant in any given gene? And um, so that's that's the design of the study, trying to find out what it is about trisomy 21 that makes you susceptible to having an AVSD, but doesn't cause it. It's not sufficient in and of itself. So you have to have something else that that is causative. And uh, we we're hoping, expecting really to find genes and other parts of the genomes that have changes in them that interact essentially with trisomy 21 to cause the AVSD. So, so, so as you mentioned the paper, it's a polygenic contribution. So it's a complex um, set of factors. And what you're trying to, if I understand it correctly, uh, Cheryl, you, you're trying to get to those aspects uh, that that appears to contribute uh, to ABSD. You mentioned lungs also. So um, are, are there lung-based diseases that you look at here too, or that's different? That's that's actually different. We um, are the lung disease that is associated with Down syndrome. We think is acquired. In other words, it's because of the heart defect. So it would be secondary. And in any of these genetic studies, you don't want to think that you can ask too many questions of one data set because they're so specifically designed to answer the specific question that you're asking that it's unlikely that most studies will have so-called statistical power to answer multiple questions. So we're very, very focused on this ABSD is the one thing that we're interested in here. Doesn't mean that we can't use the genetic and the data to ask and answer other questions, but um, the specific analysis wouldn't be the same. So, so uh, is there a strong um, 
kind of a genetic um, um genetic based um probability for down syndrome in other words uh, desitron in the family so down syndrome the increased risk when you have a child with down syndrome the increased risk for having a second child with down syndrome is greater than somebody who doesn't have a kid with down syndrome but it's not very much greater except in certain instances so um i met once a mother who had a child with down syndrome but she also had a child with another chromosome disorder called turner syndrome now there're two very different things turner syndrome is the loss of a second sex chromosome so they only have a single x chromosome and um there's there's some there's some distinction there that's subtle but um they are essentially they've lost a, a chromosome in down syndrome you've actually gained a chromosome trisomy 21 now right. but the, but these cider genetic or chromosome disorders occur through a common pathway called non disjunction so when the cells are dividing um and they um in particular this um during early development that you yeah. are pairing up chromosomes and if they don't disjoin the way they're supposed to they're not separating the way that they're supposed to you can get an error and so this woman told me that her doctor told her she was the queen of non disjunction because she obviously has something in her probably in her genetics that makes her susceptible to having non disjunction when she is um procreating and so there are rare instances where you have families that have multiple individuals with down syndrome or in her case two different disorders um both chromosome abnormalities but those are rarities yeah. in the general population um the risk of having a second down syndrome or indeed a second turner syndrome child is is actually quite rare Yeah you special that um we utilize sequence kernel association testing and polygenic risk score method so uh, ultimately you you could come up with sort of a, a risk score of ABSD if you have DS Yeah that's what that's what our goal is that's what we're hoping we're yeah. we're um we still got a ways to go it looks like we probably need larger studies and maybe more um highly powered studies so to speak but um the idea is that there would maybe be a very specific combination of of factors that go into causing AVSD and down syndrome and um we we've got some leads as to what those might be but but um statistically not strong um in contrast in in our studies of Turner syndrome we are actually finding what we were hoping to find in down syndrome and that is um that in turner syndrome through similar methodologies we've actually determined that there is a gene um actually on chromosome 22 that it inter- that has um changes in it that interact with a gene on the x chromosome and we think that that causes the heart defect called bicuspid aortic valve disease syndrome. So so that study showed us that this is possible. Um in down syndrome yeah. for some reason it's just more complex. They think the genetics are more complex and so it's more difficult for us to detect. Do we have detection um uh before birth 
of the child, uh, you know, some probability of uh, DS happening, and if so, uh, if AVSD could be present as well. Yeah, so there, so there is um, prenatal testing, quite robust prenatal testing for um, Down syndrome. And it's interesting that you asked that because there was an article in a recent issue of The Atlantic and I, I'm not going to remember the title of the article exactly, but I think it was something like The Last Child with Down Syndrome. And I, I, I disagree with the title because um, prenatal testing is not going to make Down Syndrome disappear from the face of the earth for very many reasons. Right. Um, people choose not always to ab abort a, a Down Syndrome pregnancy. There are women that don't have access to prenatal diagnosis and testing. Um, and, you know, so there's, there's a lot of reasons why Down syndrome won't disappear. But the article itself was, was very balanced and well-written. And um, it was based mostly on data from Denmark, where um, the um, rate of termination of Down syndrome fetuses that are detected by um, prenatal Testing is actually quite high. I think she said it was around 95%. Um, it's, it's less in this country. It, it just, it, I think it depends on where you are. But yes, there good reason to be looking at the heart early on um, in these babies um, to detect um, heart defects. And that prepares then for in a live birth um, to um, be ready to manage the infant clinically and get them to surgery at the appropriate time so that they do survive. Um, so, so that, that, that's a common practice. If they, if they're, it's a known, um, Down syndrome child, they're, they're definitely monitored very early on for evidence of heart defects, um, so that they can be managed appropriately. And, um, you know, with the urgency that the heart defect requires, but, you know, a lot of them sadly don't make it to live birth too. The, the, the um, the loss of pregnancy um, because of a heart defect, just not making it a viable infant um, is not insignificant. It's pretty high. Right, right. Yeah, I, I mean, if you're successful, uh, you really determine that risk score. I guess that score could be applied even before birth, right? Um, to, to give you some, some more robust <laughs> expectation of... Uh, uh, both uh, Down syndrome existing as well as Down syndrome coupled with ABSD. Right, right. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. And, and it sounds to me, um, Sharon, I nothing about this, but this type of data might be very amenable to, you know, some of the machine learning techniques, right? Um, you know, so, so you have a cohort of uh, Down syndrome patients, some of them develop ABSD, ABSD itself is on a spectrum. Um, I, I wondered if this type of data might be uh, amenable to machine learning. Is that something that you try? Yeah, it's something that we're very, very much interested in and um, think that it's very exciting in, in its potential. And I'll kind of pivot back to Turner's syndrome as the example for this, because not everybody with Turner's syndrome is what we would call 45X. In other words, you, instead of having 46 pair chromosomes that you have, 45, and then one of them has to be an X because um, that's the only survivable um, loss of a second sex chromosome. But 50% of those individuals have all these other complex rearrangements. They're not just clean 45X. 
they might be mosaic. In other words, they might have some cells that are 45X and some that are 46XX, or they have translocations of chromosomes, all kinds of crazy things that we see there. And it's a challenge, but I also see it as a very, very rich data set because there is this normal or survivable large-scale genetic variation. And we know yeah. that X are at higher risk for having heart defects um, than people with these other rearrangements, but we don't understand the other rearrangements very, anymore. And if we did whole genome sequencing, it would be very, very challenging. Um, it, it would require machine learning techniques to sort out the the rich data that's there and help us understand not just the heart defects, but all of the other comorbidities that occur in Turner syndrome. And the same can be said for Down syndrome, although the vast majority of individuals with Down syndrome are very clean trisomy 21. However, yeah. human genome is, is a vast, vast space, as you know, and it's very complex. <laughs> and there's all kinds of subtleties that we're just becoming aware of in terms of distinction. So yeah, absolutely. I think that machine learning, um, we're lagging behind. We, we really need to catch up and, and find partners um, for those efforts because it's the only way that we're going to fully um, appreciate what it, the data is telling us. Yeah, so, so let's talk about Turner syndrome a little bit. You have another paper on Turner syndrome. So if I understand this correctly, Cheryl, this is um, the the X chromosome is missing? That's um, It can actually be an X chromosome that's missing or a Y chromosome that's missing. These the oh, people okay. with Turner syndrome are phenotypically female because they have only an X chromosome and no Y. But on some individuals, we see a little bit of residual Y material that tells us that they started out destined to be genetically male um, and that Y got lost mostly along the way. And so so they, they don't do that transition um, to the male phenotype. And um, but the residual Y tells us that they started out there and, and just didn't arrive. So second sex chromosome is what we say. So it's a deficiency of a second sex chromosome, but um, it, it's really um, important distinction that what we're seeing is not equivalent to males. Males only have a single X chromosome also, um, that these individuals are missing whatever material that they needed on their second X chromosome or second Y chromosome to um, be phenotypically normal. So, so so what would be sort of the, um, you know, the most um, uh, identifiable feature of Turner syndrome? They so tend to be small. There is growth retardation early on. And so um, there, there is a, a gene called the Shox gene on the X chromosome. And if you only have one copy, you don't reach normal height. You don't advance to puberty. Um, essentially growth, um, so very short stature. Um, yeah. The standard of care here yeah. is that, that they're now treated with growth hormones so that they can reach some um, growth potential, but also with um, sex hormones because uh, they don't reach puberty, it, which becomes a very dangerous thing that if, you, if you're not getting estrogen and progesterone, um, 
to treat that, that you can have really severe osteoarthritis and other things um, that are that are actually clinically very damaging. And so um, they need to be taken um, pharmacologically um, into puberty um, in order, because they have primary ovarian failure is another feature of it. So um, very interesting disorder. We, we, we refer to it as a condition that largely predisposes yeah. these individuals to a wide variety of other common things in the human gene or in the human um, experience. So they have a really, really high rate of congenital heart defects. In mm. as many as 30 to 50% of them have what's called a bicuspid aortic valve and associated aortic disease, um, which is the aorta being the large vessel that feeds the, the body that um, if they have aortic disease and it becomes damaged and ruptures that that of course is, is um, at the very best life-threatening. It's, it's oftentimes fatal. And, but they also have this really high rate of cardiovascular-related disease throughout life. So not just congenital heart defects, but they die earlier and in greater numbers from cardiovascular-related disease than people yeah. of all diseases and all causes of death in the general population do. And so... Um, Another way of saying it is, is that, that they, they die earlier and more frequently of cardiovascular disease than anybody else in the population. And I, th I think that that, that is, is fascinating. We know that as children, they have, um, or at least we think we know, there's evidence that as children, they have er very early onset hypertension. Um, they have a very, yeah. um, when we're studying this now and um, don't have the data yet, but we believe that they have a very high rate of early onset type 2 diabetes, much higher the gen than the general population. So it's, it's like they have all of the common things that occur in the general population, um, some of it in the general population associated with lifestyle, but they're getting these things much right. earlier in, at age. And, and, and sort of a much more fatal way in a way that we believe is genetically driven and um, is not life. I mean, I, I, you can't discount lifestyle, obviously, but, but yeah. just this very rich population to be studied um, that will not just serve the maybe around 80,000 individuals in the U.S. with Turner syndrome, but it's going to answer really important questions about the health of everybody, of every one of us. Um, because it's going to yeah. identify in a way that probably isn't possible just studying the general population, at least not feasible, um, in terms of just the amount of money it would take and the amount of work that it would be. Um, we, can, we can start answering questions ab that are about really hard topics like hypertension, diabetes, heart disease, um, obesity, um, metabolic disease, things that we worry about for all of us every single day. We've got this population, and they, in my mind, they're the answer. They're the, they're the population that we should be studying genetically to find answers for disease for all of us. Yeah, so um, would it be correct, Cheryl, to think about that population sort of accelerating these, these things that we worry about for the general population, like you mentioned, hypertension, diabetes, um, obesity and so on, which is a big part of our healthcare costs, um, just because of lifestyle. Uh, does the Turner syndrome population sort of accelerate 
There's... Yeah, I think that they do. I, I think that um, it's, and we've, uh, my colleagues and I talk about this quite a lot, that we think that they actually have what we call advanced cardiovascular age. Um, and yeah. so to me, you know, that just, like I said, seems to me a research gold mine um, to the benefit of all of us. And we are working, um, I'm working with colleagues in particular, Dr. Michael Silberbach here at OHSU, um, building along with the Turner Syndrome Society of the US, which is our sort of patient advocate partner, uh, a Turner Syndrome research registry so that like I described for Down syndrome earlier, we'll have access to a patient cohort to do these studies. You know, then it's just a matter of getting finding the money. We've got the technology, we'll have the patient population, um, but these are obviously pretty expensive experiments to do. Um, but we also already have over a thousand people in our registry. So we have the statistical power to answer these questions. And um, we, we will need, um, you know, machine learning experts and partners that know how to do things that we don't know how to do to analyze the data, but we know the questions to ask and how to ask them. Yeah. And if I, just correctly, so ABST is a, is, is a severe um, issue, but the Turner syndrome population could have could have normalized. So, so um, 90 to 99% of Turner syndrome is actually lost in utero. So what we're seeing in the live births uh -huh. are the least severe of the heart defects. And yet they have, um, like I said, all of these cardiovascular issues that significantly shorten their lifespan and they and it, it damages um, quality of life also. They... Um, they do have things like AVSDs and others really severe heart defects that are not nearly as survivable. So we see we see only the more yeah. mild ones, but this huge increase in incidence of bicuspid aortic valve, where you know maybe 30-40% of people with Turner syndrome have a BAV, in the general population, about 2% of males and 0.5% of females that are chromosomally normal will have a, a BAV. And to me, that's interesting because it suggests in males and just in, in the general population, males have a much higher risk than females. So there's something that, that's to Turner syndrome. Same thing is that it's the loss of a second X chromosome in Turner syndrome that probably um, that is missing in the male that's so there's something about, in other words, there's something about having yeah. two X chromosomes that is protective from this heart defect. Mm -hmm. And the dangerous thing about this heart defect is that it can it can pretty much go undetected, but down the road, for some reason that we don't really understand, you might have aortic disease that can be quite deadly. So there's something about having a congenital heart defect, a bicuspid valve, that predisposes these individuals to having an aorta that is um, that is susceptible to um, rupturing, which of course is devastating. So, yeah, very interesting. So, so is it? Uh, so you you could have a missing. X, you could also have a faulty X, or maybe an right. incomplete yes. X, right? And, and that shows up in, in different ways. But all of these seem to point to cardiovascular diseases. Is that, is that what we find all this chromosome? Yeah, so so the, the thing about Turner syndrome is they also have 
a very high rate of neurosensorial hearing loss. They have um, oh. skeletal defects. They have um, learning disabilities. They also have a specific um, cognitive defect, which is kind of a, a spatial thing. So they tend to be very bright individuals um, that are, you know, I, I know individuals with Turner syndrome who are judges, they're attorneys, they're physicians, they're geneticists, they're social workers. They won't be engineers or airline pilots, though, because they can't really relate to things in time and space very easily. So if I give somebody with Turner syndrome a map and have them go from point A to point B, they, they're they're not going to be terribly likely to be able to do it for the most part. And so there is so much to be learned from Turner syndrome um, in terms of all of these different things. Cardiovascular is what I focus on as a cardiovascular geneticist, but um, we, I have colleagues um, throughout the Turner's, um, what we call the Turner's Resource Network that um, are working on all of these different aspects of Turner syndrome. And so with one, study or with one experiment, so to speak. So if we were able to do whole genome sequencing on a large number of individuals with Turner syndrome, we could then take that genetic information and pass it out to everybody who's interested in studying it and answer a huge variety of questions that are applicable to all of us. Is it in some ways um, akin to these patients showing um, uh, premature aging? That that's not the case. So that's one one thing that I am really interested in, because there is something, a phenomenon that's that's not terribly well studied, but is becoming more and more a point of interest, and that's called epigenetic aging. So the things that control yeah. your genes, the factors that control your genes. Um, show um, an epigenetic clock, so to speak. It changes over time. As we change over time, it makes it makes really uh, intuitive sense that as we age, we change. And that means that, that the way our genes are acting are also changing. And there have been studies that have shown that there is what's called an epigenetic clock. And there, um, I, I am really interested in asking and answering the question, and we're doing this study right now, in fact, in my lab, do individuals with Turner syndrome show advanced epigenetic age compared to other individuals? So, sorry about that. So, um, yeah, don't put my phone on me. So I, I think that um, there is just a wealth of information out there in these individuals and, um, you know, for, for the want of a few million dollars, um, to, to do this study, I think that um, it's going to, I, I, I just hope that um, really individuals with Turner syndrome are going to find their way into mainstream research so that um, this wealth of genetic and epigenetic information can be used to good effect for everybody. Yeah, yeah and it's not a small population, right? So you said um, 80,000, 100,000 uh, in 300 million in the U.S. So if you if you do it internationally. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And um, for instance, I have a colleague in Denmark who, who runs the Danish Turner Syndrome Registry. So there are efforts elsewhere, um, too. And we do work together. Yeah. Um, he and I have collaborated on more than one study. And so, yes, and I think that just through the Turner's Resource Network alone, 
say that we were able to get the maybe three to five million dollars to um, to sequence the genomes of a thousand um, Turner syndrome study subjects, that would be very, very powerful. We could answer a lot of questions with that information. Excellent. Yeah. And we'll take a quick break. Uh, when we come back, we'll talk more about the Turner Research Network. This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com. So we're back. Uh, Cheryl, we were talking about um, some of the chromosome defects related diseases like uh, Turner syndrome and Down syndrome and associated um, cardiovascular disease problems. Um, and, and one of the areas that you have done a lot of work in and continue to do a lot of work in is the Turner, uh, Turner syndrome area. Uh, you have a conference on this that, uh, that happened and you have a paper coming out of that conference. Uh, you mentioned the Turner Research Network in this paper. So is that a sort of a formal organization or is just a network of universities? So it's um, a virtual organization basically that was founded by my colleague, Dr. Michael Silberbach, who is a pediatric cardiologist and has um, specialized in Turner syndrome throughout his career. And he has um, heads the um, scientific and professional advisory boards of the Turner Syndrome Society of the US. Yeah. And he has been a very strong advocate for Turner Syndrome research. Um, it, it was actually his enthusiasm and knowledge that, that got me involved in this area of research. And um, many years ago, and I get the date wrong probably, but around 2014, the formation of what was called what we're calling the Turner's Resource Network. Hmm. And I enthusiastically accepted the opportunity to be on that particular board and um, approached um, NIH for funding for a conference and um, brought together specialists from all over the world who were interested in Turner's syndrome to discuss the state of the art of research in Turner's syndrome the needs, we had patient advocates there, um, individuals with Turner syndrome or parents of girls with Turner syndrome to tell us what they thought their needs were. Um, I learned long time ago um, through our Down syndrome work that you always listen to the families and the patients. They're the ones that know what they need. Um, we, can, we can ask all kinds of interesting questions, but are we asking things that are relevant to these individuals? And, um, you know, in terms of studying um, these, disorders with an eye towards cardiovascular diseases or defects, one in a hundred children is born with a cardiovascular defect of some sort. And that's an enormous number. I mean, they're population of any given type. So having an AVSD is rare, but if you lump together all congenital heart defects, including things like bicuspid aortic valve, which is the most common, 
um, congenital heart defect. Um, that one in a hundred kids, that's astounding um, that there are that many children born every year with one heart defect or another. And yet these individuals um, with Turner syndrome, or with Down syndrome, um, have an even much, much higher rate of, of being born with a heart defect. And so, so that's kind of the, the global context of, of why to study this and to bring together all of the experts. Yeah. Um, the goal was for the Turner's Resource Network, not just to ask about cardiovascular disease, but all of the other comorbidities that um, do this. And so we actually have um, monthly board meetings to discuss the various issues. Um, we try to be cognizant of funding opportunities. But our largest effort right now is to build this Turner Syndrome Research Registry hmm. in conjunction with the Turner Syndrome Society of the U.S. And I mentioned earlier that it's well underway. Um, we have a robust platform. We have individuals who are, are doing the informed consent process to um, get permission to include people into this registry. And uh, like I said, we've got over a thousand Turner syndrome study participants already in the registry, adding in their information. And our premise is that the, this should be a two-way street, that these individuals are contributing all the time. If you've got a rare disorder like Turner syndrome or Down syndrome, you're constantly being a participate in one study or another. Having a registry eases the burden on those because it, individuals because it centralizes them and then studies come through the Turner's Resource Network to the registry and make a request to use that resource. And so it lowers the burden on the participants, but it also makes them owners of their own data and their own information. And that's that's paradigm shifting. That's not something that happens often in research, um, if at all, that we, we utilize study participants and then we kind of just walk away with the data. And, um, and this is a agreement that we have that my colleague um, Dr. Silberbach likened to a handshake that we are telling them that, yes, we need you to participate in order to do these studies, but that you own your data and that we are we are partnering with you. We are not asking you to enroll in a study um, that you'll never see um, anything from, basically. Yeah. I mean, what is really interesting about Turner syndrome, and you, you touched on this before, you say in the paper that Turner syndrome should not only be viewed um, as a rare disorder, but also as a model for common diseases uh, that have a male sex bias in general population. Um, and so, so the, you know, that makes the scope of really studying Turner syndrome, not just as a rare disorder, as you say, but uh, as you mentioned before, uh, we could learn a tremendous amount um, about sort of common diseases uh, like hypertension, type 2 diabetes, uh, obesity, and so on, uh, which is which is very highly prevalent <laughs> in the population, right? Yes, it is. Yeah, and so, so, so how do you? So I, I know that this has just started the the registry, the term syndrome registry, uh, as you mentioned, just started. Bridge um, this data with um, you know with those conditions in some way, or do you see some sort sort of a a, a population based study that's combined with the Turner syndrome specific population? 
So I, I yes to both basically that um, what we want to have in the Turner syndrome study is um, a, a large enough population so that we're catching all of these comorbid diseases that go along with Turner syndrome in sufficient numbers to be studied. And certainly heart defects is gonna be one of the easier ones, but type two diabetes is gonna be one of our pilot studies too. Um, we, when you're doing genetic analysis, we think that probably we'll need to, in some ways, until we get better at, at machine learning at least, um, to study Turner syndrome with versus Turner syndrome. So say um, the study that I did, um, that you read about where we were looking at bicuspid aortic valve in Turner syndrome, we compared that group of people to individuals with Turner syndrome who have a normal heart. Because right. I, I was concerned that there would be too much noise if we compared them to the general population. Hmm. Um, we'd have to figure out ways of, of dealing with um, um, the X chromosome abnormalities in Turner syndrome compared to individuals that, that don't have those abnormalities. However, over time, as we get better and better at these analyses and figure out ways to um, have more sophisticated analysis of the data, um, that we should be able to also combine it with the general population and learn a lot that way too. Yeah, and um, as you, uh, I don't know if you if you uh, mentioned this, but Turner syndrome is again sort of like a spectrum, right? It's it's like the the uh, we could be missing the X chromosome, it may be incomplete, and so on. So there's a spectrum of uh, disease states there too, right? Absolutely, and we see um, individuals with Turner syndrome who um, range in everything from some of them being wheelchair bound from skeletal abnormalities, others that are perfectly healthy and you wouldn't, you wouldn't visually distinguish them from uh, just a maybe somewhat slightly shorter female individual and everything yeah. in between, including, like I said, the very um, high rate of, of early young death from cardiovascular related diseases. Um, and that can, yeah, that can be visually silent, right? So that you can be walking down the street with somebody with type two diabetes and you'll never ever know it. But um, mm -hmm. some, some have other things that are just you know, very apparent. Some die in infancy. As I mentioned, the, the vast majority of Turner syndrome conceptuses die in utero. They don't make it to Libra. So, um, We've got, you know, a huge amount of work cut out for us, but there's there's just so much here to be learned um, from this population that it, that it's, it's worth the effort. Yeah, one of the things that you mentioned in the paper is uh, sort of how the NIH um, research funding uh, could look at Turner syndrome because it's touching a lot of different areas. Yeah. Um, yeah. In, in some sense, Go ahead, it's sir. Bad, not very specific. Um, so, so do you see these types of, um, you know, research areas maybe looked at differently by NIH? What, what, what are your thoughts on that? Well, so National Institutes of Health and Institutes is plural because it, a lot of people say National Institute of Health. Uh, that's incorrect. The institutes, there are multiple institutes um, under the NIH umbrella, and um, they tend to be... Um, 
body part specific, so to speak. Um, <laughs> we get most of our funding through the National Institute of Heart, Lung, Blood, and Sleep Disorders. Um, there's the National Cancer Institute. There's um, the National Institute of Aging, and you could go on and on, diabetes. Um, and, and so what you see then is the comorbidities in Turner syndrome spread across all of the National Institutes of Health. And if you're studying congenital heart defects, you will go to NHLBI, the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute, because that is their mission. Um, we once were writing a, a proposal, and it was for a grant mechanism that NHLBI doesn't have. And so we went to National Institute of Child Health um, Disease, um, Health and Disease, NICHD, um, and they refused us and said, no, you're working on the heart, therefore you're not, um, the subject isn't appropriate for our institute. So they don't step on each other's toes. They don't, they stay in their own lanes. And I, we were arguing, but it's a childhood disease and you you are Child Health and Human Development um, Institute. They said, yeah, but it's to do with the heart. We can't touch it. And so, so there's, um, for Turner syndrome, a very specific problem in getting funding because you no no one NIH institute sort of takes ownership of Turner syndrome as a condition. They'll they'll yeah. they'll be maybe interested in heart defects in the Heart Lung and Blood Institute, but um, they're not going to want to hear about diabetes that goes to a different institute, and so you become very diluted out, and that could be seen as an opportunity, but actually we've seen it more as a barrier because a lot of people don't really appreciate why one should study rare disorders. There's so much else going on in the world we need to focus or elsewhere. However, as a result, at least in part, I think of our efforts, or I like to think so, that um, a couple of years ago, um, Heart, Lung and Blood Institute issued a rare disorders grant opportunity. And it yes. was substantial, it was $4 million um, per grant. And Turner syndrome was named as one of the specific areas of interest that they wanted to see um, worked on. And so we're very excited getting ourselves all geared up and ready and writing the grant. And then COVID-19 hits and all bets are off and, and the, um, the request for applications was discontinued. Now. It was devastating to us because we were well into it, put a lot of work into it, very excited for the opportunity. But yeah, I understand. I mean, the world has changed in the last year significantly and priorities had to change. I'm just hoping that when we come back to a more normal time, that it won't be forgotten that rare disorders such as Turner's syndrome are incredibly important to study and that resources will come back into that arena. Yeah. So, so in conclusion, uh, Cheryl, um, uh, so you have the Turner Syndrome Research Registry uh, uh, beginning to uh, beginning to put together uh, that sort of reduces the burden uh, on patients um, and makes that process a lot more systematic. So, if you if you look forward five years, um, where do you think we will make uh, significant um, discoveries, developments uh, in this area? So I think the biggest bang for the buck right now will be, as I've mentioned numerous times, whole genome sequencing. 
of a substantial number of individuals with Turner syndrome in an unbiased way. We're just looking at their genome sequences. And then we have that available as a resource for individuals who study Turner syndrome. And we're, we're, we're trying to see the future now and we're trying to set the stage for the future now. So we're, we're, we have one individual who, um, Rebecca Nickmeyer, who is uh, studying the um, brain aspect of Turner syndrome, so to speak, the, um, uh, the spatial and cognitive dysfunction and she is set up to do a pilot project with some whole exome data that we already have in hand with Turner syndrome. And um, But to look forward to the future, we want to have all of these genomes done so that we can then have that data used over and over and over again for a variety of different projects. And mine would certainly be focused on the congenital heart defects and cardiovascular disease and aspect. Um, and I would partner with a lot of different individuals who specialize in diabetes. We're already working on that um, with Sean Lee Davis and um, hypertension would be another area. And so I think that the impact could be very broad across many different diseases worked on simultaneously all off of the same large data set. Do you, do you uh, foresee a situation where you can actually fix it through gene editing or something like that? I don't, I, you know, I, I never say no or never because things, remarkable yeah. things have been happening. Um, we are more focused um, in the cardiovascular arena on um, what can be done medically for these individuals to slow the progression of, of the rampant cardiovascular related diseases. Um, I foresee the possibility of being able to pharmacologically treat aortas so that they don't get weak and rupture. Um, I think that there, there's a lot of potential there. The bigger picture of things like gene editing, um, like I said, I, I, I wouldn't say no to that at all, um, but I have an easier time envisioning the more near future of all of the discoveries that we can make. I mean, if you think about it, um, we have statins and can treat um, cardiovascular disease the way we do now is because of a rare disorder called familial hypocholesterolemia. If that hadn't been studied many back in the day um, and used as an example of learning how to figure out how cholesterol biosynthesis worked, um, that we wouldn't have statins today. And so rare disorders have a long, illustrious history of helping us fix um, common diseases. And so I see Turner syndrome in that arena of, of being able to help us figure out pathways for things like diabetes and cardiovascular disease and, and, and essential hearing not loss, any of these different things, and then figuring out ways to treat and, and even maybe fix them. Yeah, yeah. This has been uh, great, Cheryl. Let's hope that we'll fix the COVID-19 situation uh, so that you can continue with this very important research. We'll be out there helping to get people vaccinated from my institution. <laughs> Thanks so Thank much. Thank you. Bye. Bye. This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at 
scientificsense.com